The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be bringing back our friend, Dr. Marsha Schmidt-Blaine. Hey. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about women in the White Mountains. Oh, that's us. New Hampshire. (laughs) I was like, wait a second. We live in the White Mountains and we're women. (laughs) So obviously, this whole episode is going to be about us, right? Avi. (laughs) Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, why did women explore the White Mountains? And we're joined on the episode by Dr. Marsha Schmidt-Blaine. Dr. Blaine recorded this for us for our summer retreat. And I am so excited to share her information with everybody. Yeah. um, On the podcast. Very exciting. This is a cool topic. This is a very cool topic. Brooke, for people that aren't from the White Mountains. (laughs) Oh, crap. You want me to (laughs) represent all of them? All of them. No. So the White Mountains is a region in New Hampshire, northern New Hampshire. There is other White Mountains in the U.S. So we should should preface. We're talking about the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Correct. And um, they're very big and vast in Mount Washington is consistent in there. And yep. Mount Washington's the tallest. They're yep. part of the Appalachian Mountains. The presidentials. Yep. They are um, <clears throat> people familiar with the Appalachian Mountains. What you need to know about the White Mountains is that they're rocky. And <laughs> I have walked past a lot of people on trails up here who are not from New Hampshire, who have hiked mm. a lot wherever they're from and are like, there are a lot of rocks here. It's very <laughs> steep. We are the granite state. <laughs> we are the granite state. So um, a lot of the mountains are uh, have, you know, bald summits and right. um, are really, really exposed. They're very dangerous. People mm-hmm. die in the White Mountains every year, um, especially in places like Tuckerman's Ravine, which is on Mount Washington. Yeah. Well, and there's also some really cool sites to be seen. You know, when you come up here, there's a lot of um, the National Forest Preserves, mm-hmm. which is really cool so that nothing will be built there ever and it's there for you for the rest of your life to come yep. see and i think the flume is probably my favorite that's up here yeah which was discovered by a woman oh. so get to know that story if you will um but yeah there's some really cool natural um by beautiful. a white woman right i'm assuming native americans probably 
Um, I'm imagining Native Americans knew it before, but the first white woman to document it. Yeah, cool. She was looking for water in the woods and came across the flume. Oh, so cool. And what is the flume? The flume is this natural gorge that um, used to be solid ice. And when the ice melted, it it created this huge cavern between two rocks that you can walk through. It is enormous and they the national forest put these really cool walking trails through it and you can kind of navigate your way and it's, yeah it's freezing in the summer so hottest of days in new hampshire you want to cool down go to the flume yeah. walk through it and it's like a natural air conditioner oh it's so cool um and the but the white mountains are really beautiful there is some really amazing history here mm-hmm. because I think of it as like kind of the original frontier before right. the West. And um, there, the were OG. F- there were families that were like leaving Boston and moving to New Hampshire and like yeah. living well, in I the mean, wilderness. And Dartmouth College is in the White Mountains, which is kind of cool, and was started to um, build a school for Native Americans, which was really interesting hmm. how that started. The and the trail goes right through Dartmouth. Yeah, the, yeah, um, the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, in the summer, <laughs> might want to hold your nose as you're walking down Main Street in, in Hanover, New Hampshire, as the trail, the Appalachian Trail, goes right through Main Street. So all the hikers are ending. Yeah, they're probably like um, a two days walk to the end of the trail. Yeah, so a little funky. Yeah, little funky, funky smells going down Main Street <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> But I just, I love this area. Obviously, we live here. It's beautiful. And um, so it's really cool to me that in it, in the early settlement period, mm-hmm. women were part, you know, part of the families that were, that moved up here and were part of the rich history. And in some ways, we're like breaking barriers and hitting firsts and, you know, peaking mountains and getting some of those first summits. Yeah. And, um, I think there's some such cool stuff we get to learn from um, the professor. It's just the gear was one of the cooler things that yeah. I'm like excited for people like to how learn they more did about. It. Yeah, like because at the time, women were wearing dresses. How yeah. do you hike in a dress? Yeah. How do you hike in a hoop skirt? Like, yeah. no, corset. no, no, corset. Like, <laughs> like all these things that you were required as a woman at that time period to wear. Yeah. How do you then adventure? I think about like the movement in like outdoor. You, you know well athletic gear we don't even think gear. of like but athletic gear in, as a thing in hiking and, and mountaineering you wear like the lightest th- you know they're like there are people that are going like all carbon and it's all like as ultra light you know whatever yeah. it is and these women are wearing like wool, wool gowns <laughs> <laughs> So like, much fabric. This is the antithesis of everything. Imagine we, how we like the now. pure sweat from yeah. that hike. Like, good lord, no. Yeah, Vito. But they did it, and it's so cool. Yeah, it's so cool. So I am really excited to have Dr. Marsha Schmidt Blaine. She is a professor emeritus um, where I work, and I am just so excited because she is a wealth of knowledge. Mm. Let's have her introduce herself. Hi, my name is Marcia Schmidt-Blaine. I'm a professor emerita of history. I'm speaking to you today a little bit about what women gained from their work in the White Mountains and their pleasure in the White Mountains as well. One of the things that I'm hoping that you can bring to your students is the idea that the past is far more complex than most people give it credit for. When we think of the past, we romanticize it often and think of it in a way that doesn't include all the different aspects of reality. So I want you to think about the complexity of the past. In the past too, when you look at what has happened, often we miss women completely. Women are glossed over. 
Yeah, I subtitled this Pushing Boundaries and Gaining Strengths. And women did use the mountains as a way of pushing boundaries and gaining strengths. They also used it as a, a means of discovering not just themselves, which you kind of expect me to say, but in this case for also discovering nature and what nature has to offer. It also led them to become some of the major um, conservation leaders and preservation leaders of the latter part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. In putting together the exhibit, Taking the Lead, Women in the White Mountains, for the Museum of the White Mountains, we hired social studies educator Brandon Haas. Professor Haas helped pull together some um, lesson plans that I will share with you towards the end. He also put together some essential questions that I'm hoping you can bring to your students as you're thinking about women in the White Mountains. And of course, one thing to remember when we're talking about 19th century women in the White Mountains, we are talking about an overwhelmingly white group of women. The one exception to this would be some of the Abenaki or Native American women who were also in the White Mountains. We're gonna be looking at primarily middle-class white women, but we also will be looking at some quite wealthy white women as well. So 19th century middle-class white women. I want you to think about the expectations that they brought with them. What did society expect of middle-class white women? What were the limitations that were placed on them by that same society? And what did they place on themselves? What did they use as a source of strength before they found the mountains and then when they discovered nature? What were some stretches they were able to make within those expectations and limits, some reasonable stretches that we can expect of women at this time period? I also want you to keep in mind that there's a big difference between women who lived in rural, uh, rural areas and women who lived in urban areas. It was the urban women who were visiting the White Mountains as tourists, and it was, of course, those rural women who were hosting them or um, in some way dealt with them in the White Mountains. And then the ever perennial question, what drew them to the mountains? What draws us to the mountains? In putting together the exhibit, we came up with this theme. When hikers or climbers head into the mountains, one person takes the lead. The lead may change over the course of a climb as one person's expertise comes to the fore or another has a burst of energy that carries the group forward. The leader sets the pace, the tone, and the path for the climb. The mountains do not discriminate. They bring out the strength of will and body individuals bring to them. Obviously, this theme fits far more than the mountains, but it's something that I think becomes obvious once you begin looking at the mountains. We're going to start looking at the early 19th century and bring it up to the 20th century, and we're going to stop by, start by looking at some pioneer women. I'm going to focus on Lucy Crawford as the example. Lucy Crawford lived in the White Mountains. She arrived in 1817 um, and went to what we now think of it as Crawford Notch, but was then known as the Notch of the White Mountains. She was there to help care for her grandfather who was ill. Her cousin, Ethan Allen Crawford, was also on the property doing similarly. Her grandfather died about a year later, and she then married her cousin, Ethan Allen Crawford. 
The two of them turned to running the inn that her grandparents had begun. They ran the farm that her grandparents had begun as well and continued the logging operation. She was quite a pioneer woman. She also was a woman of a tremendous stamina. The day she gave birth to her first child, her house burned around her and completely burned to the ground. The um, house and what uh, all its everything that was in it was totally uninsured. She and her husband spent the rest of their lives in financial difficulties in part because of that. They had mortgaged the inn and the fire took away any prospect of any kind of a, a stable future. But she was an innkeeper and she was a well-known innkeeper. She was someone that people depended on. She was also a hiker, a tramper. Her husband did not like the fact that she wanted to hike the White Mountains. Um, in 1821s, a woman had, uh, two women had come to their inn and had invited her to join them as they and their male companions and chaperones um, took the three-day, five-night, uh, excuse me, five-day, three-night hike into the top of Mount Washington. Ethan Allen said she couldn't go. In 1825, though, a woman and her brother arrived, and it was in 1825 that she finally convinced her husband to go up. She was a chaperone for the young woman, and she was amazed with what she saw. Here's what she said. How delightful. We could look in every direction and view the works of nature as they lay before us could see towns and villages in the distance. And so clear was the atmosphere that we could distinguish one house from another. But should I attempt to describe the scenery, my pen would fail for want of language to express my ideas of the grandeur of this place. This was a woman of words. She not only wrote what I just read to you, but she wrote, wrote the entire history of the White Mountains that was first published in 1846. She was someone who recognized the extraordinary nature of what she was living through. Here's an ordinary woman, as women were, who was recognizing the extraordinary time and place she lived in. She said she wrote it in her spare time. She also wrote it because they were in dire financial straits by the 1840s. So she was someone who was an expert in disaster, since financially her life was disastrous, but she was also an expert in other types of disaster. For instance, if you don't know about the Willie disaster, I urge you to read about it. Lucy Crawford was a leader in many ways. She was a pioneer in difficult mountain living. She was an early innkeeper who tended some of the very first true tourists to the White Mountains. She was one of the first women to climb Mount Washington. And she was a historian who recognized the uniqueness of his, her family's story. She led in one way and other women followed her. Would she have recognized herself as a leader? I very much doubt it. The leadership and the accomplishment of Crawford and other women were often hidden by their husband's names. Her history of the White Mountains was written as if her husband wrote it. She wrote in his voice. Women's responsibilities were often split between family duties, childbearing, money-earning work of some sort or another. Even today, society tends to overlook women's work. Their leadership, after all, can be seen as, well, a duty to the family 
or simply an enthusiasm. But women did come. Early and even later tourists often preferred what was known as a pedestrian tour. When applied to the White Mountains region, we're talking about people who would walk along the valley floor. They did not climb. They would look up and view the mountains and admire them from that level. Let me give you a, a couple of examples. One is Francis or Fanny Appleton. In 1833, 15-year-old Fanny Appleton's mother died. Frances Appleton, Elizabeth Frances Appleton was her entire name. She was later Longfellow's wife. Fanny Appleton and her family decided to take a two-month tour of the Northern United States. And they followed a book that was published in 1828 called The Fashionable Tour. The 1828 version of The Fashionable Tour was the first time that the White Mountains had been included. They traveled in a private coach and Lucy drew this picture of their private coach. You can tell that they were greeted often with animals on the roads. You can also see that they often traveled on corduroy roads. You will notice that there were logs in this road that they, uh, that they traveled. It was not an easy or a comfortable drive. They stayed in the very best of accommodations, but the accommodations still were quite rustic. The journey followed a very, well, we could call it a stately pace, but it was almost bewildering to Fanny. She wrote, one is almost bewildered by the ever-changing variety and has hardly admired sufficiently one sweet landscape before a turn in the road brings an equally picturesque and rural scene, yet differing from the other entirely. Her father, by the way, was a very well-educated and a prominent businessman from Haverhill, Massachusetts. And he was at this point also a US congressman. But for this trip, it's more important to know that he also was an amateur geologist. One of the reasons they decided to go to Franconia Notch was because of the unique, or one Randall Bennett called it, a museum of natural curiosities down in Franconia Notch, including the old man walking along the Franconia Notch road, rustic as it was. Fanny stopped, saw the old man and was drawn to him. She produced what we believe to be the first um, drawing of the White Mountain actually taken on site. Another person who did some of these pedestrian tours was another teenager, 16-year-old Mary Hale. Mary Hale talked about going through Crawford Notch and then spending time in the notch. She wrote, after supper, we walked down through the Crawford Notch for about two miles. The scene was truly grand. Immense rocks towering above our heads looked very frightful. It was impossible for a person who has such a weak mind as mine to describe the view that we had there of the beauties of nature. We walked until dark, then returned. If you've been through the notch, you may be thinking, gosh, I don't remember it as being at all terrifying. But at this point in time, there was a tiny road that went up and through the notch. There were no railroad tracks, the road had not been expanded, and the area that goes through the actual notch was quite tight. At certain places in the notch, the, the cliffs practically overhung the, uh, 
um, the road, it was a place that terrified quite a few people. Mary Hale was also, though, a hiker. She loved to climb. She claimed to be only the second female on top of Mount Lafayette. On August 25th, 18, 1840, she wrote, we started to go up Mount Lafayette at seven o'clock. It is three miles high, very steep, some places almost perpendicular. As an aside, by the way, if you have hiked Lafayette, you know that's a very accurate description. We arrived at the top of the mountain at about 11 o'clock. The ascent is laborious, but easily accomplished moderately. I arrived at the top of the mountain first. There never was but one female there but myself went above vegetation. The prospect was delightful. Apparently, young Hale quite literally took the lead up the final ascent of Mount Lafayette. Another woman who um, liked these mountaintop experiences was a woman that we only know as Mrs. Daniel Patch, and she was the first woman to hike Mount Musilaki. She is said to have brought with her her teapot and to have brewed tea on top of the mountain. So while it was not yet the norm, there were adventurous women who enjoyed the physical challenges of climbing and the soul-satisfying views that are found on mountaintops. By the 1830s, some the, the women that were coming up, many of them regularly went to the tops of mountains. One person to speak of is Louisa May Alcott. Yes, that Louisa May Alcott. Before she was well-known, she was just beginning to write, Louisa May Alcott visited her cousin and his wife when they were staying at the Alpine House in Gorham in 1861. She was oh, quite well aware that people were expected to go to the mountaintop to read particular parts of poetry and to go into ecstasies, as she put it. And here's what she wrote. The idea of doing the mountains in a regular, everyday guidebook style was not to be entertained for a moment by me. If there is anything I especially abominate, it is, it is being trotted from place to place and ordered to go into ecstasies just because everyone else does. I don't want admiration dragged out of me. I want to give it when, where, and how I like and have the privilege of turning up my nose. Yet when she reached the top of Mount Washington, she went into ecstasies. Here's what she wrote. The mountain exceeded my expectation in all respects, and I love them heartily, for they seemed to look down upon me like serene titans. As I sat there aloft, there the mountains all about me seemed made of shaded velvet. So unbroken was the smooth sheet of verdure stretching to their topics. Forest of maple, oak, and pine, where all manner of wild things live undisturbed, for many of these forests have never been explored, and there they stand as they were made, untouched by axes, untrod by human feet. I sat myself down in the shade of a rock and sat there for an hour, I verily believe without winking. For an hour, I was supremely happy. Not because I was just then one of the most eminent women on this side of the Rocky Mountains, but because I forgot my body, my cares, my fears, my fate, and seemed nothing but spirit. That loving beauty had found its fill for once. 
By the way, the article that includes Alcott's uh, quotes, uh, it's letters from the mountains that she, it was published um, in a place that's very difficult to find. I shared and you should be receiving it. Many people traveled to the White Mountains um, that were uh, not necessarily quite as well to do, but they were able to come to the mountains because of the increasing ease of getting to the White Mountains. In 1861, when Louisa May Alcott came up to the mountains, she came by railroad. At that point in time, in order to get to take the railroad into the mountains, you had to go from Boston to Portland, Maine, and then from Portland, Maine, over to Gorham, New Hampshire. The railroad company then built the Grand Hotel known as the Alpine House, and that's the easiest way at that point in time to get into the White Mountains. Train travel was a marvel, and Alcott uh, really viewed the trip with excitement and trepidation. Uh, and yet, she, as she went through, she said train travel allowed them to see what was outside, but so quickly. It went perilously fast, she said. Predict smashery and meditate on the immortality of the soul. But as trains were added and the speed of travel increased and the cost decreased, a greater number and a greater variety of people became tourists to the White Mountains. So the views of these forested mountainsides, like the one that you can see here in Charles Codman's Summit House painting, was something that people came to believe was part of the American experience. It was something that we had that Europe did not, where Europe had been tamed. New, uh, America had wild mountains. Let's look at some of the people who took climbing quite seriously and became trailblazers. Something deep within our psyche really finds contentment, awe, and nourishment in views from heights. In 1863, during the middle of the Civil War, the first hiking club in the United States was founded. It was called the Alpine Club, and it was based in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Nine out of the 12 people who founded the club were women. The club's objectives were, quote, to explore the interesting places in the vicinity, to become acquainted, and to some extent at least, the natural history of the localities, and also to improve the pedestrian power of its members. They found themselves drawn to the mountains, and by 1865 were trekking up to the White Mountains. In August, of 1865, after the end of the Civil War, they made a 12-day expedition uh, in late August. On the last day of that trip, after 11 days of travel, they started from the summit of Mount Washington. And for those of you who are hikers and have hiked the mountains, you'll know this is just an amazing feat. They hiked mounts from Washington to Clay, Jefferson, Adams, and Madison. They got lost for a while before they finally found Dolly Cop's imp cottage. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these 
is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10 minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. Amazing. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are yeah. fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood yes. who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, no, very <laughs> funny. <laughs> but that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we yeah. have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Okay. Um, so their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project and then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through instagram facebook we have a venmo account you can find us there that's awesome um, and they're making those contributions so yeah it's an amazing thing and if this is something that you're like yes that's what teachers need any every penny helps because it is a really expensive project so. it yeah totally and we had a match donor for a while there too yeah. which is really cool so definitely if you're interested in those yeah feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm oh. excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. The Alpine Club was soon disbanded, but it was only the beginning of a number of hiking clubs. The one that we know best is the Appalachian Mountain Club, which was formed in 1876. But even that is not all. There were quite a few. Women did join the Appalachian Mountain Club, which was not closed to women as some clubs were. And the ladies, as they were called, proved themselves to be good hikers and campers. Two women that you want to know were part of the Randolph Mountain Club. And these are the Pychowskas. Uh, in this case, we're looking at Lucia Pychowska on the left. Lucia Pychowska was a gifted poet author and translator. She was also an amazing botanist whose work rivaled professional botanist. Her sister, excuse me, her daughter was Miriam Pachowska. And Miriam was a mountaineer who was one of the earliest to draw the Northern presidential range to scale. Edith Cook was Miriam Pachowska's sister, and Edith Cook was best known for her work as an artist, and she produced a number of landscape paintings and sketches of the White Mountains, most of which she gave as gifts. I have not actually ever had the pleasure of seeing one of Edith Cook's paintings. These three women were avid AMC members. They delivered papers to the club during their public conferences. They published articles in the AMC's public journals uh, on their botanical discoveries, on their explorations, on trail building efforts. Um, they, they were also intrepid hikers. The original letters of Lucia, Edith, Miriam, and their friend Isabella Stone carry the, the pride and the excitement of their work and their deep love of the mountains. 
Luckily for us, June Hammond Rowand and Peter Rowan have written um, a book called Mountain Summers that brings all of these letters together with explanatory notes and ex uh, that, that go throughout it. It was uh, it is quite good. And when you see the bibliography that I provided for the Remedial History Project, you'll find the Rowan's book. On October 5th, 1879, Marian Pychowska wrote to Isabella Stone, it was delightful to be in the pathless woods once more and to struggle with its finer growth of hobblebush, familiarly known as shin hobble, as we have ever seen. Hiking, of course, was not easy for women. Often they were hiking in places where there were no trails yet blazed, and you'll notice their skirts are not short. Yet these women were literal trailblazers. My mother, aunt, and I, Miriam wrote, have employed three afternoons on the Mount Madison path and measuring it. Mr. Watson supplied us with a surveyor's chain, which we have duly carried over the route to a point midway between the other upper Salmecas Falls and the tree line. This point is two and three quarters miles from the ravine house, and we hope that a mile and a half more will put us at the top of the mountain. It will require a whole day to finish the work, and I wish you could be here then to be proud with us of our own special way on getting the great range done, even to the punctuation on the signage. Later that same month, that same month, they surveyed a new route to Mount Adams, it's now, by the way, the Scar Trail, which will bring its summit almost as near to us in Randolph as that of Madison. The rocks and gateways along this narrow crest are very fine, and it affords superb views of the ravine and the peaks of Madison, John Quincy, and Adams. How many other women in the 1880s were stretching themselves physically and mentally in the manner that these women were? We cannot know. Women's letters and journals were often not saved. We're quite lucky to have these. So only the more public exploits have been recorded in published materials. Increasingly, the challenges that women found in the White Mountains were of their own making. They sought out difficult climbs. They found new plants and enlarged botanical knowledge, and they literally blazed trails. But American society was not yet ready to accept that outdoor life or physical challenges were appropriate for women in general. Instead, certain women were allowed to lead and to gain recognition. And obviously this meant that they had the approval of the men in their lives. This kind of notoriety was not something that most women wanted. Most women quite purposely tried to stay in the background. After all, what women cared to be known as one who would sleep in a space shared with men. Now we were skirting around the idea of, sorry, no pun intended, women's clothing. And it's really impossible to talk about late 19th, the late 19th century and early 20th century women's hiking and climbing in the White Mountains without discussing clothing. Clothing may seem to be something that is minor, almost trivial, and yet, when you watch the clothing styles, what you're seeing are changes in the roles of women 
and expectations for women in America. So if we're looking at the earlier part of the century, women's everyday garb really was not suited to hiking. And you can tell looking at this woman in the bustle and the quite tight corset, these amazing hats that they wore, the ruffles that are on their skirts, which were quite popular at this point in time, they were not suited to hiking. These long dresses, the skirts impeded progress those ruffles caught on everything. These cinched undergarments also impeded breathing. And I don't know about you, but the last time I hiked a mountain, uh, there were, a lot of breathing was involved. <laughs> the materials used also were not uh, suited to outdoor recreation. During the uh, exhibit, we had two sets of women's clothing. One just mainly to look at and to peel back, but one so that um, anybody, but particularly children, could simply take off the numerous layers that women wore at this point in time. And it was a summer garb that we put up so that they could get an idea of what women were wearing and what, what strictures they had, and also what they were wearing when they were trying to hike mountains that most of these kids have hiked. Well, Louisa May Alcott, yes, I'll fall back on her, her again, visit to the White Mountains. Her, her visit involved walks through fairly open and relatively level terrain, and yet she too complained about her clothing. She envied men's clothing. She wrote, I wish I too could be one of the fellows, could wear a hat without any brim, could tuck my trousers into my boots and lark off whenever I like. Instead of being a martyr to haberdashery, smothered in coaches and cars and handled about as gingerly as if I were labeled glass, this side up with care. <laughs> and yet she made fun of women who uh, took off their skirts in order to be able to hike or to get into and out of mountain carriages as they're heading to the top of Mount Washington. She wrote, young ladies without hoops skimmed by looking like limp ghosts of their former selves. Old ladies were compactly done up like plaid bundles going by some Arctic Express. Small girls had their hats tied down fore and aft. Alcott again, she also, like so many women, um, was there to be seen as well as to see the mountains, because people who came to the White Mountains did come to see and be seen. And they often strolled about, uh, dressed in their finery. Well, one day Alcott did that with a bad result. I will descend to the grievance of a mundane woman. In spite of many warnings, I have spurned waterproof and rubbers and have gone forth brave in a new Balmoral boots and hat not to mention a dandelion-colored gown in a high state of starch. Thus regally arrayed and more than usually comfortable in my mind, I sat innocently watching a pretty gray cloud come floating up from the east. Admiring its shadow on the green or purple fields below and thinking no evil until it came just over me. Then what did that scandalous vapor do but empty itself like a bucket right down on our heads. It was a personal affront. I felt it so, and in high dungeon streamed away home. It was dreadfully humiliating to return in such an ignominious manner. 
with my drapery more antique than was agreeable, my feet swashing in my boots and my hat, oh, my hat, a wreck, a ruin with rain dripping from its brim and ribbons leaving vivid uh, green marks upon my agitated countenance. Mrs. W.G. Knoll, in writing in Appalachia in 1877, gave the quote that's here on the right. Our dress has done all the mischief. For years, it has kept us away from the glory of the woods and the grandeur of mountain heights. It is time we should reform. And so she suggested using flannel bathing outfits instead. These flannel bathing outfits um, were ones that she thought could be easily adapted to be worn up in the mountains. And she was right, by the way. You'll notice this has a shorter skirt, so it catch on less. It has what we think of as bloomers coming all the way down to her ankle, however, and um, high lace-up boots with low heels. But the fashion did not catch on. One observer did report that there were women in the 1870s who, who were wearing such, uh, they were called beach costume maidens, so beach costumes up on Mount Washington in the late 1870s. But in general, uh, it just didn't catch on. By 18, uh, 1935, when um, Marjorie Heard wrote an article about women's hiking clothing, she made fun of it. And, and that's what this comes from, and this comes from. So um, another, so this is 1877, the first flannel bathing suit idea. By 1887, um, Lucia Pychowska suggested something quite different. She said, what we need, what we need is to have low heel boots, woolen stockings, gray flannel skirts, knee link trousers secured with loose elastic, and since most ladies find two skirts more agreeable than one, two skirts. The under one should be made of gray flannel, finished with a hem, reaching just below the knee. The outer skirt should be of whimsy or of Kentucky jean. Flannel tears too readily to be good as an outer skirt. The outer skirt, she said, was longer so that it could be tied up washerwoman style, and that's what this is purporting to show where they've taken the skirt, extra parts of the skirt and brought it around and clasped it tightly in front. Thus outfitted, women could have appeared at the end of these walks sufficiently presentable, she said, to enter a hotel or a railroad car without attracting uncomfortable attention. While Marjorie Hurd did make fun of this particular style of dress, there were women who did it. And you can see here from the Museum of the White Mountains uh, collection that women did tie up their skirts in this manner. You can tell also that Marjorie Hurd knew about uh, Lucia Pychowska because she's pictured not only in the mountains wearing the outfit that she suggested, but looking at alpine flowers so that she can um, identify them. So thus arrayed, Clothing did not impede the Pychowska women from exploring remote areas of the White Mountains or for doing things that were unexpected of women hikers. For example, at least occasionally, they climbed trees. From these heights, they could see you know, what path they should follow or 
if there was a path at all ahead of them. When Isabella Stone inquired of them in 1882, how do you manage to climb trees so readily without dropping your um, dress skirts? Miriam Pichowska wrote her back. You wonder how my aunt and I climb trees. Consider first that the middle-sized spruce trees were conveniently branched down to the ground. The getting up is very easy as the skirt comes naturally after. A graceful descent, however, is more difficult as the same skirts are apt to remain above. But my uncle and Mr. Pete considerably left, uh, considerately left us so that grace did not have to be considered. So clothing reform continued as more women hiked. When Annie Smith Peck made a presidential um, traverse solo in 1897, she made sure her dress was appropriate for all possibilities. Here's what the newspapers reported. At five in the morning on September 3rd, following a hearty breakfast, Peck left the ravine house wearing the same costume she had worn on her Matterhorn ascent. She also carried a linen skirt. Peck said she ordinarily would have started her hike by wearing the skirt, but no guests at the ravine house were up. So she rolled the skirt into a bundle and hung it from her belt. A small bag contained a sandwich, chocolate, raisins, and a small bottle of brandy, and that also hung from her belt. At the Summit House at the top of Mount Washington, she immediately put on her skirt. So even a woman as bold as Alice Peck did not go into public areas without a skirt hiding her narrow bloomers. But she did lead the way for some sartorial changes for women. And you can see those were slow in coming. They carried quite a bit on their backs and they were getting ready to go off into the mountains for a week-long camping trip trip. Well, I don't know about you, but I seldom look that good when I'm heading into the mountains, even if it's just a day-long trip. After 1900, hiking skirts made a rapid retreat. By the mid-1910s, skirts had all but disappeared and were being replaced by, and were replaced by pants, which gradually transitioned from bloomers to a jodfer style. In 1828, Mabel Geddes was photographed standing on the old man of the mountains, forehead wearing knickers, high socks, a collar shirt, knit hat, low boots, and a watch. By the 1930s, there were even women who were seen in shorts and halter tops. This picture, however, is not of somebody from the early 1900s. It's instead a picture of Rebecca Fullerton wearing a, a costume that was modeled on some she found from 1915. And this is in 2015 when she hiked parts of the White Mountains wearing this particular costume. This particular costume, uh, she said, was very comfortable, but hot. Uh, can you imagine wearing wool in the White Mountains in the summer or even late summer? Let's look at artists, poets, and writers for a minute. Art historian Al, uh, Francis McIntyre points out that at least a quarter of the American artists who submitted works to major urban expeditions in the second half of the 19th century were women. Her words fit the literary, uh, fit literary artist as well. Male artists and writers of the 19th century are far better known today than women. It's another example of women getting pushed out of the historical record. But at the time, the public loved what women wrote. 
Now, no matter the decade, women with young children, I do want to reiterate, found it difficult to maintain or promote their creative life in writing or in art. Yet, like all artists and writers, the women were pathbreakers. Not only were they some of the first women to sell art or publish poetry, but their work helped to introduce an interested public, especially the middle class, especially women, to the wonders of the White Mountains. These individuals helped to shape the way Americans understood nature and really helped to deepen their relationship to nature. Let me give you a few examples. Lydia Sigourney, she was new to me. I had never heard of her, and yet she was so popular in the first half of the 19th century that there were Sigourney clubs across the nation. In 1828, she came up to, Mount, um, to the White Mountains and especially came to Crawford Notch. She had been encouraged by her friend and fellow Hartford, Connecticut uh, resident, Daniel Wadsworth, to come up to see the Willie Slide. Now, Daniel Wadsworth had seen the Willie Slide. Uh, he had actually gotten Thomas Cole, had paid for and gotten Thomas Cole to come up to the White Mountains. Uh, and Cole was awed by what he saw and painted the White Mountains. Sigourney wrote, and you've been provided with the Willie Slide, very long uh, poem about what happened in the White Mountains. Uh, by the way, the Willie Slide is a tragedy. Uh, so if you don't know about it, please look it up. It's really fascinating. She inspired many women to be poets and uh, really helped um, launch a true love of poetry that deepened as the 19th century went on. Another poet of the time from a completely different class was Lucy Larcom. Lucy Larcom was a former uh, Lowell Mill operative, and she was, um, her patron was John Greenleaf Whittier, and he invited her and other friends to the White Mountains, where she promptly fell in love with the White Mountains. To a friend, she wrote, to me, there is rest and strength and aspiration and exultation amongst the mountains. I will go and get a glimpse and breathe their glory once a year, always, but I must not go on about the mountains or I will never stop. She returned every summer for 20 years. The poetry that they produced was romantic poetry that focused on people's understanding of and their reaction to nature. And Larkham, like many poets of her time, used nature as her literary canvas and she used the White Mountains. While her poetry does not tend to meet today's sensibilities, it was very popular, so much so that when she asked, um, map makers named two mountains for legendary Native American chiefs, Passaconaway and Juana Lancet, who were the subjects of her poetry. Now let's look at some of the artists. They are far less well known than 19th century male artists, but as you can see from this painting done by Anne-Sophia Town-Dara, every bit as beautiful. Dara was a student of Benjamin Champney, and Champney had a whole group of women who uh, were his students, uh, Anne Friedland, Annie McKay, Martha Safford, Gabrielle Ada, uh, Eddie White, um, and other women. 
And another painting that I just adore was done by Louisa Morse called The Dolloff Farm in 1884. It may be because I adore fall that I particularly feel drawn to this particular painting. These are, of course, oils. These are people who were following some of the uh, White Mountain School of paintings. But there were women who painted for themselves or who drew for themselves. And quite a few botanists did as well. So Mary per Perkins Osgood, who later became Mary Perkins Osgood Cutter, um, used flowers as her main inspiration. And interestingly enough, she adored the mountains, but she ignored the mountains behind them completely. Botany was very popular in the 19th century. Flowers and uh, close-ups of nature sold. Now, Mary Perkins Osgood was a summer resident of Randolph, and she was a skilled botanist. She was obviously a skilled artist who spent much of her time in the summer studying and sketching wildflowers. Between 1895 and 1900, Osgood produced five sketchbooks containing 244 watercolors of wildflowers. She occasionally drew the mountains, but you can tell clearly that the flowers held her real passion. Women did also take part in um, more commercial forms of art as well. Frances Flora Bond Palmer of Brooklyn was hired by lithographer, uh, lithograph lithographers, Courier and Ives. She was an immigrant, she was an accomplished artist, but she did not have the means to travel. She drew popular scenes, including the White Mountains from descriptions. Courier and Ives respected her work so highly that they allowed her name to appear on their plates. And she's one of the few artists who were so permitted. She was, as they later wrote, one of their mo most prolific and talented designers. Other women, such as an artist I mentioned earlier, Gabriella Eddy White, turned to photography. It was a medium that uh, gradually took on the informational role that poetry and art had previously done. A final note about women and art in the White Mountains. Women were often the focal part, point for paintings in the late 19th and the early 20th century. And we're looking at the picture on the right, which is Winslow Homer's The Bridal Path. Art historian Robert McGrath notes that using women as a focal point was, quote, a radical shift from the face of nature to the facts of tourism. Women made mountain scenery neither threatening nor spiritually elevating. So he feels that Winslow Homer focused on human agency in the mountains by putting women in the forefront. Art historian Pamela Jane Satchett has a slightly different interpretation of the same painting. The female writer, she wrote, embodies both the domesticity admired by the men who left home to fight the Civil War and the independence they feared in the modern woman who emerged in its aftermath. Photographs also placed women in the forefront, and you can see here a woman uh, with either a chaperone or a husband or a brother going into the flume. In part, women were made the foreground because women often tended to be the ones who purchased items to carry home with them, the photographs, the stereo views, the paintings, but the implications are deeper. If a woman can take on the mountains, 
then the area is tame enough for anyone. There's a lot more I could have discussed. We haven't even touched on women's work and efforts in the budding conservation movement or the growing entrepreneurial skills of women in the White Mountains. But the White Mountains have given women the opportunity to discover their own strengths. Women hiked through scrub, hauled timber, contemplated great heights, painted the valleys, sketched the flowers, wrote of their mountain summers, camped on the ground, and discovered immense joy in the accomplishment. Women took the lead, making a welcome path for others to follow and for those women to take up the lead themselves. Now, there are a lot of resources I've, I've mentioned, uh, but I do want to point to one in particular, and that is the website for taking the lead. If you go to the website, you should see that you can see the online exhibit. You can, for free, get the entire catalog. You can also, though, listen to oral histories that were done by my students, some of today's Women of the White, some of the leaders, if you will. Uh, you can then, most importantly, scroll down and see the educational materials. We have middle school and high school materials available to you. Also remember that there are, again, additional materials. And the one thing that is no longer on this page is we had an idea of how people could then tell their stories. There are women we missed. There are women who were not included. And so we asked people who attended to tell us their stories. What women do you know who have taken the lead in the White Mountains? How have you yourself taken the lead? Has nature inspired you? All ideas, of course, that you can use with your students. Thank you very much. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. I'm M-B-L-A-I-N-E at Plymouth.edu. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.